0: All right, we're looking at Revelation chapter 20, and I know I've been flying through chapters, but in Revelation chapter 20, we've got to come to a little bit of a screeching halt. So we're only going to cover three verses today. And um, I have to say, you know, I'm going to challenge you to really, uh, you know, put on your thinking cap and engage. This is not light material. Like, we're, this, this is very heavy stuff, and um, during Sunday school, during the Sunday school hour, uh, I'm going to spend time, rather than doing the Westminster Confession today, kind of get into some of the issues surrounding this chapter, and uh, so I would encourage you to stay and ask questions, and, and I want to also, I want to present during that time all the, the various views of this chapter, and there are a lot of them, and, uh, and a lot of them have merit, but um, we'll, we'll discuss that, so... Right now, we're just going to look at Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Hear now the word of God. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of hold, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would grasp the astonishing impact of the words we just read in terms of how this affects what you have called us to be and do in this world upon how this affects our understanding of what it means to have a right standing with you in the peace that we have, recognizing that there is very much an enemy that you have subdued. So we do pray, Father, that you'd grant us understanding not only of these three verses, but as the weeks go on, this entire chapter, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. WGT Shedd. Said that the preaching of the gospel to a pagan world, apart from the power and promise of God, is, quote, the sheerest Quixoteism. You guys know Don Quixote? You know what he's saying there? He's basically going, look at it, unless we recognize the promise and power of God, preaching the gospel is chasing windmills. I'll bet you some of you have felt that way. Trying to share your faith with other people. This idea that they will never believe this. And I remember somebody one time said, Well, you believed it, so maybe they will. I mean, this, but that's the way it feels. It just feels like we are living in a talk to the hand culture. But I want us to recognize right up front as we engage in this very difficult chapter that the 20th chapter of Revelation, well, of all of its attending, Quarrels is above all a missionary chapter. I was in a discussion with a gentleman many, many years ago who was convinced that God is not overly concerned with, quote, the little things. The example he used was help in choosing whether he wore blue socks or brown socks was not something that would make it to God's to-do list. He doesn't care what color socks I wear. That wasn't the only discussion I had along those lines. Another gentleman who I served in the ministry with made it very clear that he wasn't convinced himself that God is in control of the minutia. And while we were talking, he said, look, I don't know that the sovereignty of God dictates and he looked, we were sitting at a table, and there was a fly hovering. He goes, I don't know that the sovereignty of God dictates the hovering patterns of this fly flying around the table. And I remember at the time, I didn't think much of it. I didn't, you know, object. I'm like, all right, it's a fly. But it did dawn on me at some point later that Jesus uses the smallest examples imaginable to express the hand of God in the affairs of creation. Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows, I guess he could have said flies, but he said sparrows, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. I want to add to that that I was confronted by a child who uh, challenged me with the idea, talking about big things and little things, that there are really no big things, or at least very few big things. What he meant was that big things tend to be an aggregate of small things. In a famine, for example, famine is a big thing. But in a famine, one person starves at a time. Or in a plague, which is a big thing, a very small germ joins with other germs to sicken their victims one at a time. The Great Commission. It's a big thing, right? We are called to disciple the nations. And even though a large group of people might hear and believe and obey, the large group is inevitably made up of what? In- individual people. Now, I mentioned that as we embark upon this chapter this very, very difficult and controversial chapter, because this chapter is massive. It's it's a big chapter covering big things. It's massive in its length of time. Of all the time periods we've we've seen in Revelation, right? We saw 10 days, we saw a half hour, we see 1260 days. This chapter contains the longest period of time, the thousand years, and I'm going to argue that it's longer than that. It's massive in terms of its geographical impact. The deception of the nations is at stake in this chapter. It's massive in terms of its judgment. It's not merely the judgment of, of one nation or one household or one person, It culminates with the great white throne judgment from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. It's also massive in terms of who's hamshackled in this chapter. Almost every word used to describe the devil is in one verse in this chapter. Dragon, serpent, devil, Satan. All just put there for like impact, And because of the massive nature of this massive chapter that has caused more division and disruptions than any chapter in history, the millennium, this thousand years, has been called a thousand years of peace over which the church can't stop fighting but because of the massive nature of it we may be tempted to view ourselves and sometimes it is presented this way as a mere audience in this grand spectacle we're just here watching as a matter of fact one book i as i was studying this years ago was entitled front row seats like we are just in a theater watching this all take place let me tell you friends that is a very unhealthy way for you to read your bible as if there's this grand spectacle taking place, and we're just sitting there sedentary watching it happen. James writes in 122, but be what? Doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We are to intently look at the Bible with the intention of having it affect us in every conceivable way. I think it would be a significant mistake for us to think that John's vision of this angel coming down from heaven has not and does not impact each one of us personally and then all of us corporately. "'Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of hold, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years.' Now, some people view this angel as Christ himself. I don't think it's a bad argument. I'm not sure if I 100%. Others think it's Michael or some other you know, prominent angel. But just so you understand, some people think this is Jesus because he's the one with a key. And the key is a symbol of sovereignty. We saw it in the very first chapter, right? Revelation 1:18. Jesus, I am he, who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. So we know it's Christ. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So the idea of having a key at least can carry with it, and I don't think it's absolute, but it can carry with it the idea of a symbol of sovereignty. But add to that that he is the one who does the binding. Right? He comes and he binds the devil. Let's chase that down a little bit, this idea of the binding. I've entitled this... Sermon, The Binding of Satan, because I think that's the central point in these three verses, if not the whole chapter. When Jesus was accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub, right? He's casting demons out by the demons, you know, that Jesus is accused of being dark. His answer to that accusation was loaded. I mean, we could do a whole series on how he answered that. Question: First, he tells them that a house divided will not stand, anticipating the inevitable failure of Satan's effort. Someone once said, the bad news is, as Christians, we're fighting a dragon. The good news is, the dragon is suicidal. It implodes. So Jesus, in his answer to being one who would cast out demons by a demon goes, that house won't stand, that won't last. He also taught, and I think this is also significant for those of you who are studying this, he also taught that if he has, quote, cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, I'm guessing in our church, nobody's shocked at that statement, but you have to understand, we live in a culture, a Christian culture, where that's the minority report that the kingdom of God is, in fact, current. Over and again, and you, if for you to understand this, you're going to have to come to Sunday school for the next few weeks to get these millennial positions down. Millennium, that's kind of Latin for a thousand, right? A thousand years, millennium, thousand years. But over and against the premillennial understanding of the kingdom, that it is yet future, most of your Christian friends will say, the millennium has not started, it starts after the second coming. When we read something like this, the necessary force of this statement, since he had just cast out demons, right? He goes, "If if I, in fact, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, just to do the logic here, right? He had just cast out demons. Ergo, the kingdom of God has come upon you. But to our current point, then Jesus says this, or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds by the way, it's the same verb that here in Matthew that we have in Revelation. Binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. You see, what Jesus is teaching there is that he is taking back that which is rightly his. Ask of me, it says in Psalm 2, and I will give you the nations as in your inheritance. As Greg Bonson said, are we to assume Jesus didn't ask? I think he did ask, and he is taking back the nations as its inheritance. And let me just stop here for a second, lest we get lost in the whole idea that this is merely about a key and a chain, because it involves a great deal more than a key and a chain, this idea that he is binding the strong man and taking back the created order that was usurped by the devil at the fall of man. Because all of this involves a paid ransom. It's not as if Jesus is just showing up with a chain and a key. He is able to do this because he paid a ransom. He is worthy, as we read earlier in Revelation. Why? Because he has purchased with his blood from all tongues and tribes. So he is the one who is worthy to do this the only one worthy to do this. So Jesus is saying, I've got to bind the strong man, and you understand his, his little metaphor, his, his, his illustration here. The idea is that there is a house, and in the house, there's the evil one, and the evil one needs to be bound, and once he is bound, then we go ahead and take back that which is ours. Let's notice this. I just kind of objected to a premillennial. Now I'm going to object to an amillennial view, which I think is a little bit more biblical, in my opinion, than the premillennial view. At least according to some amillennial, and again, you're going to have to come to Sunday school because I I realize when I use these words, you're like, what are you talking about? But this idea of amillennial is held by many people, and that is the millennium is that which is happening in heaven during the intermediate state. That's what the millennium is. The millennium is otherworldly, not here. Not all all all-millennialists hold that view, but that's kind of their view. Their view is, this is is what's going on in heaven, but I'm going to ask you to just look at the passage and tell me if that's the case, because the angel is doing what? coming down from heaven. Not staying in heaven, but coming down from heaven. So the effect of this binding is very much on earth. And the time frame is not merely future, but now. Now, now the binding of Satan, just so you understand, is equated with the inauguration of the king and the kingdom And the Gospels are adamantly repetitious about the timing of the establishment of the kingdom of God. We read in Matthew 16, 28, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's a pretty powerful statement. We read in Mark 9, 1, And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Again, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And again in Luke 9.27, but I tell you, truly there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now some people, just so you understand, if you ever have this conversation with anybody, some people will say, well that's the transfiguration, which happens a week later. Let me tell you why I don't think that works, among many other reasons. One is, it's a week later. If I were to say to you, some of you are still going to be alive when, during the Christmas Eve service. That, that wouldn't make sense. Most of you will be alive by December 24th. Right? So it doesn't make sense to say some of you will still be alive in a week from now. But if I were to say to you, in 40 years from now, some of you will still be alive. That would make all the sense in the world, right? Some of us are probably not going to be here in 40 years. but Most of you guys over here, not you, but most of you guys (laughs) are going to be here. So I think what he's talking about there is the destruction of the temple, the, the end of the old covenant and so forth. And that's when Jesus comes and his kingdom is fully established. And we add a couple of things to this. In very detailed instruction in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is talking about what a lot of people view to be the end of the world, sun is darkened, the moon not giving its light, the heavens are shaken, and so forth, Jesus is not unclear about the timing of that. Right in that chapter, chapter 24, verse 34, we read this. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So if you're sitting there in the Olivet Discourse and Jesus is giving a lesson and you hear him say, Te it's this generation. He's using the near demonstrative, this. He could have said that generation because a lot of people say, well, that's the generation toward the end of the world, but he's not. And every time, by the way, in Matthew, that generation is used every single time. He's talking about the generation of the people. were alive at the time, and he's saying all these things that I'm talking about, all of this will happen before this generation passes away. Let me add to this, when the 70 returned with joy, saying this, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, Jesus says something that I think we need to wrestle with. As a matter of fact, not only do we need to wrestle with it, we need to rejoice in it. Jesus says this, and I don't know how many times you hear this in your Bible teaching. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What is that? See, a lot of people today think that Satan has got the same office and the same force and the same power that he did prior to Christ. But we got to figure out What this means, what does it mean that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven? And let me tell you this, he's not talking about some distant future event. John 12, 31, now, now, not then, not some future time, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You know, when Jesus spoke of the sending of the Spirit, and we all know that happened at Pentecost, right? I mean, it starts in the upper room and then in, into Pentecost, and then throughout the Revelation we see the sending of the Spirit in terms of the new covenant. It was to be, the sending of the Spirit, which happened 2,000 years ago, was to be concurrent with the judgment of Satan. John 16:8 through 11, and when he comes, he's talking about the sending of the Holy Spirit, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We all, we all agree with that. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. But this is the one verse I want us to dial in on. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You see, it's, I have to kind of exercise restraint and stop because it's not as if you're grabbing one little verse and going, I'm going to make this one verse work. It's over and over and over. What we have to understand, brothers and sisters, is that Christ's accomplished work of redemption had a significant impact on the devil. Satan, at least in some sense, has been judged. Now this might be hard to follow and I'm going to say it anyway. I think a very solid argument is made that in Revelation 12:9 we see try to understand this and I'm going to go over the cosmic conflict in just a second between Satan and Christ. In Revelation 12:9 we see Satan cast to the earth. If you remember correctly, chapter 12 of Revelation is kind of a parenthetical statement about the birth of the baby and so forth, you know, so you're it's almost like you're backing up and kind of God is explaining what is actually happening in terms of his redemptive plan. And in that, Satan is cast to the earth, and he's cast to the earth during the time of Christ, wreaking havoc. Okay, He's cast to the earth, wreaking havoc, and he knows this. He has a short time. He's going to wreak havoc because he goes, I know my time is short. And I would say this explains all the demonic activity during the time of Christ. You ever notice when you read the Gospels how many demons there are? It's like every time you turn the corner, there's another demon that's got to be cast out. Why would that be? Because Satan, in a certain sense, is cast to the earth, and you've got all this demonic activity. In Revelation 9.1, the angel has a key to the abyss. He opens it. He opens this bottomless pit, and out of this, kind of Pandora's box, comes this great evil that is taking place. He's cast to the earth, and then what, here is, what I'm going to argue here is that in chapter 20, we see that he's put back in the pit. So the angel has the key, opens it, it comes out, you have all this demonic activity, you have this contest between Christ and the devil, and then when we get to chapter 20... We see a key again, and now what is happening with that key? The devil is being put in the pit and locked in it and chained and so forth. Let me see if I can make this really simple. And I think Revelation is only difficult because we make it difficult because we don't read it in light of other Scripture. Because what I'm saying right now should not be shocking to Christians unless we are allowing the most difficult chapter in all of Scripture— to undermine the clear teaching of Scripture everywhere else. The analogy of faith, which is a a primary form of hermeneutics or the way we should read the Bible, teaches that we should allow the clear things in the Bible to help us understand the unclear things and not vice versa. You don't want to read chapter 20 and then redo all of your theology. And I think it's very clear up to here what has actually taken place. I'll just pick one passage where we see... I think, in the form of kind of a didactic instruction coming from the Apostle Paul, in terms of what has happened, and it's in relationship to the resurrection and the ascent, ascension and what was accomplished. Ephesians one twenty and twenty one, he's talking about all of this, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Right, so you see the resurrection and the ascension, right? The Son of Man going to the Ancient of Days, and he's given a kingdom far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. I think that's what Revelation 20 is talking about. He's talking about the fact that the devil has been bound in such a way that the kingdom of Christ will advance and the power of the devil has been ham-shackled. You know, you know what ham-shackled means? It's it. It's a ranching term where they take a rope and they tie it around an animal's neck and his leg so he can't run. That's what's happened to the devil. He's been ham-shackled. Here again, we see a big event, right? The resurrection, big event, ascension. big. These are big deals. But let... Let us not lose sight of why Paul is sharing these big events with us, this massive events, because he tells us that the power of the resurrection, the power of the ascension, that is this exceeding greatness of the power of these things is extended to us who believe. It's almost like, it's almost like he's describing this Formula One engine. And we're all kind of looking at this Formula One engine that is so loud. I don't know if you guys have ever been to like the races, right? But I remember I, I knew a, a, a girl who went to watch the Formula One and she's like, the, it was so loud, I just started crying. Like the power of it, Right? So he's describing this Formula One engine, and then he says, by the way, one of those is in your car. So when he's explaining the massive nature of this, he's going, no, but it belongs to you, to you who believe. It belongs to us. You see, friends, this is a war that has been won on two fronts. Not only has the enemy, who has come to steal, to kill, and destroy been overcome by Christ, but those who called upon the name of the Lord, and I do pray that it's everybody who hears the sound of my voice, have been given true life and power. Now let me just briefly review this cosmic conflict so we understand kind of what's going on here. You see, this devil, this deceiver, directly after He had his way with Adam and Eve who believed his lie. We read the gospel. The gospel doesn't start in the gospels. The gospel starts in Genesis 3.15. And God, talking actually to the serpent, makes kind of a promise. And he says to the serpent, there's going to be conflict between your seed and the seed of the woman. And your seed will bruise his heel, but her seed will crush your head. So you've got this promise going all the way back into Genesis that the enemy of God's people will be overcome by the seed of the woman. I don't need to tell you who the seed of the woman is, right? Two of the four Gospels start off tracing the seed, who is Christ. Now until the coming of Christ, and this is a huge point that we need, I think, to understand. Until the coming of Christ, right, that, that evil seed kind of was ruling and reigning. Matter of fact, John puts it this way. In 1 John 5, 19, he says, the whole world lay under the sway of the wicked one. So when Christ came, that through that entire old covenant, there was one nation where God was. But when Christ came, it would extend to every nation kindred and tongue. I've, I've compared it to a, a firework, right, during the 4th of July, you know, when you are the fireworks are going and you've got this one little light that goes up and you're watching it, that's the Old Covenant. It's this one little light. It's Israel. But when Christ comes, what happens? It explodes and then it lights the entire sky. So prior to Christ, the whole world lie in darkness. But here's a mistake a lot of Christians make. They view that as a prescription for all of history. They view this idea that the whole world lay under the sway of the wicked one, because especially if you had a bad day or a bad week, and you're like, yeah, well, Satan's still in charge. What about all the verses we just read where he's judged that Christ came to overcome him, and on and on and on? We should not view the fact that when John wrote that, all the world lay under the sway of the wicked one, that John is saying, and it'll continue to be the case until the end of history, as if the coming of Christ had no impact upon history. The victory of Christ meant the destruction of the kingdom of Satan. 1 John 3.8, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested. To do what? That he might destroy the works of the devil. Has he done that or not? Now, we read, is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And then he adds this. And if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. You see how those two things begin to work together? The devil has been destroyed. I need to be lifted up. You know, he's referring to his own death, but I think we could also understand it as being lifted up in the preaching of the word, and I am going to draw all people to myself. It is because of this massive victory that we, you, and I individually have power over the wicked one. I don't know if, you know, you wrestle with the idea of the devil. You know, people come up to me and they're like, you know, they're struggling with the devil and what have you. The devil is a defeated enemy. I mean, the 70, when they came back, I had mentioned earlier, they marveled that the demons were subject to them as Jesus conveyed to Paul, the commission to reach out to the Gentiles, that they may turn, from what? From the power of Satan to God. And I think we tend to very casually refer to this astonishing statement of James where he says, if we resist the devil, what is he going to do? Flee. I I can't make people flee from me. We we had a volleyball tournament this weekend at the Anaheim Convention Center. There's a volleyball tournament and a jujitsu tournament. And I was walking with my son and his buddy, and I'm like, if a fight broke out between the volleyball guys and the jujitsu guys, who do you think would win? And we just kind of laughed about it. And we get in the elevator, and there's me and my son and his buddy, and then like four jujitsu guys walk in. And I asked them. <laughs> and it was funny. When, you have, when people are secure, you can feel it, right? They're like, oh, no, man, we wouldn't have a chance against you guys. You'd hit us with your volleyballs. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to tell you, I can't make a jujitsu guy flee from me. And I, th- I, I think the devil is more powerful than Hoist Gracie. I don't know who the current jujitsu champion is. Paul does tell us how we are to resist the devil. He presents it as a more or less battle plan in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, things like truth and righteousness and the gospel that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Our victory in all of this, in one way or another, is tied to the binding of Christ, the victory of Christ. His victory is our victory. Do we really think, when people talk about, i got to do battle with the devil, do we really think that we would subdue and stand against an entirely unfettered devil apart from the conquest of Christ? Do we think that? Do you have any idea what the Bible says about the power of the devil? And let me tell you this, though, that is exactly what the world is trying to do. That's why current politics is such a dog and pony show. They think that they can overcome all that is bad and evil and difficult, they think they they won't even acknowledge that there's a devil in the room, but they think they're gonna beat him anyway. And let me tell you, apart from Christ, they have no chance. Now, there's a lot more to address through this chapter, things like multiple resurrections that we'll talk about, and the idea that the millennium is yet future. We talked a little bit about it, where Jesus is in the flesh, in a man-made temple with glorified people and non-glorified people, I, I think all of that is is mistaken. But I want to finish with just two last things. the thousand-year period, and I want to build and finish with the idea of the binding of Satan. Verse 3, And he cast him into a bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more Till the thousand years were finished, but after these things he must be released for a little while. The thousand years, often as like I said, called the millennium, the Miliannum, the Thousand Years, is the period I would argue between the first and second advents of Christ. He came, he's coming again, and between those two periods is the millennium. I know that it's not the current popular view. I have publicly debated people who I disagree with. I am I was a premillennialist at one time. I don't think the position holds water for a lot of reasons that I can't go into right now. But most evangelicals see the millennium millennium as a literal thousand-year period that begins after the second coming. I think that's a mistake. And again, I will get more on that at another time, but I will say this. One is hard-pressed to find one verse in the entire Bible where all of the promises associated with the Messiah happen after the second coming. Uh, If you understand what I'm saying... God made this great promise, he's going to send a Messiah, and wonderful things are going to happen when he sends that Messiah, the Messiah is Christ. You are hard-pressed to find one verse anywhere in the Bible where that's going to happen after the second coming. And you will find a lot of passages in the Bible that seem to associate that with the fact that Christ came and will accomplish the Great Commission because he is with us always. For now, let us recognize that the thousand years mentioned in Revelation is a designation for a very long period of time, and I'm not a theological liberal in saying that, that I don't believe it's a literal thousand years. Almost, let me just say, because if you go, I don't think it's, they're like, oh, you don't take your Bible seriously. Almost every time, if not every time in the Bible, that exact number is stated, it is not to be understood literally as a thousand. Other numbers, you know, if you have a number like 23,450 or something like that, that's different. But almost every time, if not every time in the Bible, you see the number 1,000. It is either to be taken as, as longer than a 1,000 or at very least a long period of time. I just want to give you a couple of examples. Joshua 23.10, one man of you shall chase a 1,000. For the Lord your God is He who fights for you as He promised. Psalm 50:10. For every beast, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Are we to ex- I'm pretty sure there are more than a thousand hills in this world that have cattle on them. Does He only own a thousand? Well, who owns the next one? Well, the next verse actually in Psalm 50 tells you. Explains that it's everyone. Psalm 90, verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. And then Ecclesiastes 6, 6, even if he lives a thousand years twice but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place and so forth. I mean, those are just a few examples. It goes on and on. And yet there are people who will accuse you of overly massaging the Bible if you deny a literal thousand year period. And even though this, not, I'm not trying to turn you all into apologists, but so be it, right? If, if you get in a discussion and you lovingly and gently present things, the same people are going, you need to take the Bible literally. It's, literal, it's a literal thousand years. When they read in verses 1 and verse 3 of chapter 1, that these things must shortly take place and that the time is near, make that thousands of years. And let me tell you, the symbolic language in the Revelation hadn't started yet. And they're going, no, 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 that's thousands of years, even though it's going to shortly take place. But the thousand years, that has to be a thousand years. Now, me, I'm going to add one more thing, and then we move on. <laughs> you know what I feel like is happening here? I feel like this is catharsis for me. I feel like I'm psychologically getting healthier by the moment. And hopefully it's not at your expense. But I've had these conversations so many times, and I really want you to be prepared to answer these questions because almost, almost universally, the people who hold this position also believe that the end is near. Right? Every time some warhead shows up, it's the end of the world. And every time there's peace, it's peace before the storm, and on and on and on, right? It's always going to be the end of the world. But let me just say this, if you're in that conversation... That you're like, they're going, no, 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 it's got to be a literal thousand years, and we're at the end of history. God made a promise 3,500 years ago when he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses that those who loved him would know his mercy for a thousand generations. Okay, there's the number thousand again, right? I will show mercy to a thousand generations. Now, in the Bible, a generation is generally, how many years? Any guesses? 40 years. Generally, it's 40 years. So, if God is going to literally keep that promise, and it was written 3,500 years ago, if we have any mathematicians in the room, how much longer must history go? Yeah, 36,500 years. So, if you're going to take it literally, you've got to go, oh, we have at least 36,500 years to go. This can't be the end of the world. But, of course, that promise is made to any generation who loves God, right? So if we're a generation who loves God, his mercy extends to us for how long? A thousand generations. And that goes on and on and on to the last generation of people on the face of the earth. When God is going, I'm going to end history, but now I've got to keep your promise, so I've got to extend it to another 36,000. Yeah. It makes the Bible impossible to read if we read it that way. Finally, the binding of Satan. What is meant by that? Let's recognize this. Satan is an immaterial being, and he can't be bound by a literal chain or a literal pit. We've got to recognize that. Also, we should not conclude that the binding of Satan, and people will argue this, they're like, well, if you think Satan is bound, why is there still so much evil in the world taking place? And, you know, that argument comes out. We should not conclude that the binding of Satan means that he's entirely inactive in human affairs. In Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2.4, both speak of demons in chains. But clearly, there's demonic activity throughout the course of the church and throughout the course of history. So we have to understand that in some type of qualitative sense, the binding of Satan... And I would say this, and I think this is just a healthy way to read your Bible. Remember a minute ago I said in Psalm 50, verse 10, it says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, the very next verse, he says, I own everything. All right, so the next verse tells you what the previous verse meant. Right? In case somebody was like, no, 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 he owns a thousand. But the next verse says all of them. Well, we see that here as well. Right, the binding of Satan... That he, and, and so you're going, okay, what does that mean? What does the passage tell you? That he will deceive the nations no longer. Let me tell you something I think is, at least in my mind, very beautiful about what's going on here. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all commanded you, and law, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, he's giving that commission to this small group of guys. Like, you're talking about the minority minority report, right? Rome is in charge, and he's going, go make disciples, disciple the nations, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And they might be saying, this is chasing windmills. Chapter 20 tells us why that's going to succeed of Revelation. Jesus is giving us a commission and then he's telling us why it's actually going to succeed. The nations have believed a lie because they are under the sway of the wicked one. But the wicked one has been overcome. Now go into the nations and tell them the truth and we will see that the nations will all come before me and worship me, and we have given numerous passages in the Bible teaching that that is precisely what God has promised will happen. So those two things, I think, you talk about the, the, the consent of all of the parts of Scripture, I think it's just beautiful that God is going, look it, I have, I have created a situation where if you just obey me and go out and evangelize, I will bring the nations to me. Don't doubt that. Now, I am not blind to the fact that this success appears to be waning or even reversing in our current culture, our era. I live in the real world. I see what's going on. It's like people go, why do you think things are going to get better when things, you know, clearly since, you know, June and Ward Cleaver were in town, things have gotten worse. And I think you're looking at things in too short of pieces, too small of pieces. But let me, let, I think, and I think the, the catechism question today was quite good for how I want to finish this. Because God is capable. It's not as if God is going, I need to figure this out, things have hit me, and I did, I, like I didn't know, and so let me, you know, again, going back to coaching, right? When I'm coaching the team, and I go, hey, let's do this, this, and this, and then all of a sudden things aren't working out, and what do I do? I call a timeout, and I'm like, all right, that's not working. Let's try this, that, or that, Right? It's not as if God is going, look at it, I tried this, I'm going to call a timeout, let's try that. That is not the way it works. God is very capable of multitasking. He's not putting one thing on hold as he's doing something else. He's not waiting for us to feel better or get better or overcome or win the battle or win the game until he's going, okay, now we can kick in what needs to really happen here. With all of its ups and downs, God is bringing his glory to all the ends of the world. And he is using you and he is using me to accomplish that. And in doing so, now this is the final point I want to make. And in doing so, he's refining you and he's refining me through the resistance of the rebellious people that we're encountering. But make no mistake about it, I'm not a baker, but I know this, that once you put leaven in that loaf, you can't get it out. The leaven is going to leaven the loaf, right? That's what Jesus used to talk about the kingdom of God. It's like leaven. It's going to get everywhere in there. And once it's in there, you can't stop it from growing. But here's another thing I know about baking that even once you put the the yeast in there or the leaven in there, you you knead it right. Knead, k-n-e-a-d. Need, right? You flip it and pound it, and you flip it and you pound it, and you flip it and pound it. And as you're pounding it, as you're pounding that loaf, sometimes it looks like there's no yeast in it at all. It's just taking a beating. Uh, Doug Wilson made this statement, but I'd heard it years ago. I uh, actually read it years ago. So he didn't, he. Didn't, he didn't come up with it, but, but nonetheless, I feel like I need to not plagiarize. He goes, the advancement of the kingdom of God is like a string of victories disguised as defeats. This idea that, look at it's in there. The leaven is in there. And even though you feel like you're taking a beating, God is preparing you. He's working in you. You feel this. You feel the weight of it. You feel that it's hard. You feel like you're discouraged. You need to recognize that Satan is a defeated enemy. He has been bound that he would deceive the nations no further. And the Apostle Paul put it this way, in a very kind of existential appeal to what we're talking about in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12, we are afflicted in every way, I guess he wasn't living his best life now. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The kneading of the dough. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be made manifest in our mortal flesh, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize the great victory that belongs to us, not because of any great thing we have done, but because of the captain of our salvation who has won that great victory. And may we be faithful soldiers now that, that, that Goliath has been beheaded and come down from the hill and be who you've called us to be, participating in the advancement of your kingdom, for truly the kingdoms of the world belong to you. And may, Father, we ever proclaim how true that is. And we do pray, Father, also that we would not get lost and the massive magnitude of all this, but recognize that very much individually, as individual people, you are at work doing these wonderful things, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.